While the first coming of Christ was a historical event, the second coming of Christ is out yonder yet in the future. It's a divinely appointed time, but it's going to be preceded by some devastating events, absolutely devastating events. And they're going to reach their apex, and at that point, Christ is going to return. We're going to see his glorious return. Now, what are some signs that would help us to know it's just around the corner? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, as we're continuing our study through the Bible on the Gospel of Mark. And we are in what we call the Olivet Discourse, simply meaning this is kind of some instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ gave on the top of Mount uh, Olive. And he had, I guess, been in the temple area on the mount. The disciples, trying to impress him with the temple, were showing him the buildings. And he made a statement that just blew him away. He said, see all these stones? The day is coming when they're all going to be tore down. Now, to the apostles, to a Jew... That would mean the world's going to end if the temple is going to be destroyed. And so they walk quietly out of the temple mount and they go through the Kidron Valley and they go up the Mount of Olives. And finally, the apostles can't take it in anymore. They they say, what's it going to be like? When's it going to end? What are the signs going to be? And we've been looking at those signs. As we pick it up here in Mark chapter 13, let's begin in verse number 21. Christ is talking. He says, And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall arise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then shall he send his angels, and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh or near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. We're going to be talking today about his glorious return, his glorious return. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we need your help at this time. We pray that you'd give to us open hearts and listening ears, but discerning minds as well to understand truths taught from thy word. We pray for guidance, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've told before the illustration of the widow who had a son who went off to Vietnam back in the late 60s. His name was Clay. And one day, she got that dreaded call from the War Department saying her son Clay had been killed in action. Of course, she was devastated. Spent days without sleeping and eating and and wept until three days into it, the phone rang and the voice on the other end 
said, Mom, it's me, it's Clay. They made a mistake. I'm not dead. Can you imagine the joy in her heart at that time? And, and imagine someone returning that you thought you'd never see again. Well, let me just say, that would be glorious, but there is a generation that is going to see the Son of God return again, and it will be even more glorious. Christ had told us here in verse 14, let him that readeth understand it. Now, he's talking to four apostles primarily, but he's looking past them, down through the annals of time, to you folks today, reading this and hopefully understanding. Let him that readeth understandeth. We have some things here that uh, are given to us that are signs of the times that will tip us off, if you will, to when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again. We would call these the birthing pains. Any woman here who's given birth has known that moment where they go, oh, oh, this is it. You know, and the birthing pains are there. And in the same way, there's going to be some signs, some birthing pains before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back again. What's this all about? Well, we know the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture, which is when believers are caught up off this earth and they meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't set foot back on the earth, yet we meet him in the air. And there's going to be, of course, chaos back on the earth. People have disappeared. And there's going to be a man who rises to the top known as the Antichrist who's going to calm things down. And they're going to say peace and safety about three years into this thing. But at the halfway point... The Bible tells us that he's going to set himself up as God. He's going to go to this rebuilt temple, set himself on the throne in in, in the temple, and it's called by Christ the abomination that maketh desolate. And Daniel identified it 700 years earlier. There's going to be this Antichrist who sets himself up as God and says, worship me. And of course, the Jews are going to say, no way, and they're going to flee. He's going to persecute them. The blood is going to flow. It's going to be a time of chaos upon this earth. Now, let me just say, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was a historical event. There's no question it happened. There have been those who have gone to the Holy Land trying to disprove it, who have come back believers. It actually happened. Josephus even wrote about it, the Jewish historian. But while the first coming of Christ was a historical event, the second coming of Christ is out yonder yet in the future. It's a divinely appointed time, but it's going to be preceded by some devastating events, absolutely devastating events. And they're going to reach their apex, and at that point, Christ is going to return. We're going to see his glorious return. Now, what are some signs that would help us to know it's just around the corner? We've been looking at them here. We've seen a number, but let's look at a few more. We see, first of all, in this passage here today, there's going to be false saviors, false saviors. Notice in verse 21, Christ says, and then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. Now notice the word Christ to us is a familiar word. We think immediately of Jesus Christ. But back in the time of Christ, even before the time of Christ, if you said the word Christ, it meant Messiah, whoever he is. And so Christ is saying here, there's going to be a lot of false messiahs that come on and say, I'm him or I'm him, and this thing's going to go back and forth here. The, the Jews at this time were under Roman oppression. We've talked about this before. They were looking for a messiah, but not one who would suffer and bleed and die for their sins so much as one who would deliver them 
from the Roman oppression of that time, and even the apostles had been tainted into looking for that kind of a delivering Messiah. Now, just before 70 A.D., Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Romans had, they had uh, conquered or or at least captured or surrounded Jerusalem, and things were getting bad. The city was besieged, folks were starving, and there were were men rising up saying, I'm the Christ, I'm the deliverer. And it, it, it tends to get that way when things get bad. But Jesus was talking longer range than that. He was talking out yonder, even in the future from where we're at right now. Notice in verse 22, He says, for false Christs and false prophets shall rise and show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. You know, that makes sense because here they are in the the midst of the seven-year tribulation period. Everything's broken loose. It's a bloodbath. People are looking for answers. And what are folks going to want the most at that time? They're going to want a deliverer. And so there's, there's going to be a lot of these religious hucksters who rise up and say, I am him. And they're going to even be able to show signs and wonders. The devil is going to provide for people at that hour what they want the most, deliverance. You know, there's always, there's always charlatans who take advantage of people at, at times of panic and, and terror and devastation and desperation. And it's, it's at such times that you find uh, men who want attention and who want power and who want fame and authority, and, and they're, they're, they're secretly driven. They come across as noble, but, but they're really not. And Jesus said there's going to be many who are going to rise at that time. And that they're going to be able to show signs and wonders, according to verse number 22. Now, I've introduced you to the Antichrist, also known as the Beast, who's a, a one-world religious ruler. He could be alive and well right now. We don't know. But he's going to come on the scene politically and take control. But I need to introduce you to his sidekick, the false prophet. Many of you are familiar with the false prophet. Many of you aren't. But but like there's going to be a one-world political leader, there's going to be a one-world religious leader known as the false prophet. Now, every age has had its cult leaders. It's David Koresh's. It's Sung Young Moon's. It's Jim Jones's. But this guy is going to put them all to shame combined. He's going to be able to do signs and wonders according to verse number 22 going to be a false prophet nonetheless. Now, God, down through the ages, has always allowed there to be false prophets. You would think, why does he put up with this? But he has allowed it, and he's allowed it for a reason. We find in Deuteronomy 13, 1, God says, if there arise among you a prophet saying, let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet. Note this. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart. God down through the years has allowed false prophets to prove who's real and who's not, who loves the Lord and who doesn't love the Lord. God has allowed heresies. God has allowed uh, false leaders and false prophets and false teachers and, and, and folks who bring issues to the surface, even in, in, in amongst Christians today and in churches to expose who gets it and who doesn't get it. He says here he wants to prove you because Christ says in verse 22 that even the elect are going to be deceived, even Christian people. 
can be deceived. Even Christians can end up on the wrong side of the issue. In fact, we find warnings like this one in 2 Peter 3.17. Ye therefore, beloved Christian people, seeing you know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. God help us to be discerning. There's a lot of deception out there, folks. The devil is powerful. The heart is deceitful. And even the elect can get taken in and faked out. Now, the ultimate deceiver is going to be the Antichrist. The antithesis, the opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find Christ himself in John 5, 43 saying, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Way back yonder, 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ, he's already hinting about this Antichrist coming along. And he says to the Jewish people, I'm coming in my Father's name, you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, he said you're going to be taken in. Him you will receive. And verse 22 tells us that he's going to be able to do signs and wonders. Folks, not every miracle is of God. There are people who fly all over the world trying to see some statue bleed or statue cry or something supernatural take place, thinking, well, this has got to be God. No, the devil can do miracles, and he will fake people out with miracles. And we find here that he does these signs and these wonders. How can we keep from being sucked into this kind of thing? Well, here's a little tip. In 2 Peter 1.19, it says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. That's the Bible. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Folks, this is a dark place. I mean, people are in darkness. Men love darkness rather than light. And there's all kinds of deception going on. Even the elect being taken in. So we're told here that we have something better than signs and wonders. And it's the Bible. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And more than ever in these last days, folks, we need the the guidance of the light, the word of God, the truth, to get us through these, these perilous times. We see here, first of all, the false saviors. But secondly, we see here these fantastic signs. Now, in verse number 23, Christ says, but take ye heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. There it is again. Take heed. He said it in verse 5. He says it again in verse 9. He says it again here. Take heed. Take heed. Don't be sucked in. Don't be faked out. Don't be on the wrong side of the issue because it's going to be pretty convincing. Why? Because there's going to be some fantastic signs. Some fantastic signs. You know, as we study these things, I'm sure that unsaved people go, no way. <laughs> people disappearing and Christ coming back in the, in the clouds and the moon turning to blood and earthquake. And, and I, I, I could never believe that. Now, they believe in UFOs and all this other stuff, but they won't believe this. And, you know, it's a matter of not wanting to believe it. But Christ goes on in verse 24 and he says, but in those days, after that tribulation, The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. Now, we don't realize it, folks, but oftentimes Jesus Christ is quoting something. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And he's doing that here as he talks about these signs. In Isaiah 13 and 24, 
It says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion. Now we're talking about when Christ comes back again to rule and reign in, in Jerusalem or Mount Zion. And it, it tells us the exact same thing that the Savior is telling us here in Mark chapter 13. But, but Isaiah had called it 700 years earlier. And he said, this is what's going to happen. Now, the moon doesn't give off any light except the reflective light of the sun, right? So it would be easy for the moon to go dark if the, if the sun went dark. But how does the sun go dark? I mean, how does that happen without us freezing and all kinds of things taking place? Well, a hundred years before Isaiah wrote this, we find that Joel, the prophet, wrote this in Joel 2.31. He said, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. The moon turning to blood. You ever heard of a blood moon? We've been seeing those around here in the last several months. We've been hearing about these blood moons. I don't know how it's going to happen, folks. I do know that I've lived through uh, huge wildfires up in Canada and watched it become overcast and the sun look weird and the moon look weird. And, and I've lived through the Mount St. Helens erupting and that ash is coming all the way east this far and, and changing everything. But can you imagine when all these catastrophes are taking place and there's fire everywhere and there's earthquakes, what the sky's going to look like? And, and so does that blacken out the sun? I don't know. But I know what we've seen in the past could be multiplied by millions of times and we're going to kind of get a little bit of a sense of what it's going to be like as far as us looking into outer space. You know, we find this in Second Peter 3.10. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. We find here some, fa- some fantastic signs, and, and really the earth being burned up, and, and not, not annihilated so much as renovated. It's kind of like when you have a grass fire. I've done this out at my farm many times where it gets rid of the crabgrass or the cattails or whatever it might be. And, and this pure kind of a grass seems to come up. God's going to just kind of torch the earth before the millennial kingdom. Everything's going to start over again. It's all going to be fresh. Now Christ says in verse 24, but in those days... In other words, the apostles won't be around. He's talking way out yonder in the future. In those days, notice, after that tribulation. Tribulation. You've heard me use the expression tribulation, mid-trib, great tribulation. Where do we get that expression? Right here. Jesus calls it that tribulation. It's a time of trouble. In fact, it was described hundreds of years earlier by Daniel. In Daniel 12.1, he says there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. It's going to be the absolute worst time in world history. Daniel the prophet says there's not going to be anything like it. There's going to be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even unto that same time. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the aftermath of, of, of World War I or especially World War II and what Europe and, and cities in Europe and cities in Japan look like, the, the ruins and the smoke and the devastation and the buildings just in, in rubble and heaps. I mean, it's awful. 
Can you imagine that kind of a devastation? I've, I've seen what the trade towers look like when they came down. And, and you, you get those images there, but imagine what it's going to look like. There's going to be a time of trouble as has such never been. We read this in Zephaniah 1.15. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. Wow, Ooh, doesn't sound too well. Well, then we read this in verse 25. Christ says, And the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. Stars falling? I've heard of shooting stars or stars burning out and so on, but can you imagine stars falling all over the place? You know, it reminds us of something that we often take for granted. We forget what Hebrews 1.3 teaches us. Speaking of Christ, it says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. You know, there'd be stars falling all the time if the Lord wasn't upholding those things. I mean, we just attribute that to gravity and circuits and Halley's Comet. But there would be things dropping out of the universe left and right if he wasn't upholding all things by his power. So when he stops doing that, yeah, there will be stars falling. Now, don't get riled. This has to happen, folks. It has to happen. We read this in Jeremiah 4.28. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black. God says, because I have spoken it. I have purposed it. And will not repent or change my mind. Neither will I turn back from it. God says, I've spoken it. I've purposed it. It has got to happen. So let's not wring our hands and lay awake at night, all that kind of thing. Just picture God taking this this earth with his mighty hands and shaking it. Yea, the universe, basically, and shaking it. We read in in Haggai 2.6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry, dry land. God says, I'm going to shake this earth really, really good. Anyone here ever been in an earthquake before? Oh, wow, a number of you. It's on my, my bucket list. Sounds a little weird. Kind of on my bucket list, sort of. But imagine the earth trembling and, and, and shaking. We read in Hebrews 12, 26, it says, Whose voice, God's, then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. God shook the earth as he gave the law there on the top of Mount Sinai. But he says, I'm going to do it again. He says, I'll shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. So you get through all this that Christ is talking about. You get toward the end of the tribulation period. The population of the, the, the world is decimated. There's, there's wars, there's famines, there's earthquakes, there's pestilence. People are dropping like flies from disease and persecution and hundreds of millions of people are dying according to the Bible. There's, there's wars between the east and the west. The Euphrates River has dried up and these Asian kings and armies by the millions are marching here. And, and you've got these these terrifying cosmic disasters taking place. How bad is it really going to get? Well, note this again in verse 24, these words. But in those days, in those days. Folks, let me just say, if you're a Christian sitting here today, those days don't pertain to you. 
Rest easy. Sleep well. You're not going to be here. You're going to be raptured. And so the bigger question for us would be, how bad is it going to get before the rapture, right? I mean, that's what pertains to us. And there's a a lot of difference in opinions on how bad it's going to get before the rapture. I mean, it's pretty bad already. I mean, we see uh, uh, terrorism taking place and suicide bombers. There was a suicide bomber who killed dozens of people in an airport that I was just in a few months ago over uh, in Europe. You've got beheadings, and we're getting callous to that. You've got violence. We've had a violent weekend in our nation. Yay. Uh, There's even issues in the state next to us over in Minnesota. So you've got all these things and all this ungodliness. and, and, And so what about the persecution against believers as that ramps up in the last days? Folks, we've already lost more liberties than I ever imagined in just in the past uh, several years. And we are a minority and it's getting to be more of a minority all the time. But here's the silver lining, okay? Adversity binds people together. Adversity can bring God's people together. Now, the devil wants to set us against each other. He wants to set a husband against wife and children against parent and Christian against Christian and member against pastor and pastor against pastor and church against church. And, and you see this stuff going on and this tit-for-tat kind of a thing here. And, and especially as we near the end, the devil is trying to do this stuff. But I often wonder if God's going to let it get rough. And even for the Christian people, with persecution, uh, maybe an economic collapse, we don't know, a crisis. But whatever it, it is, will it bring the saints together? That's quite a thought. Will it get us pulling on the same end of the rope? Uh, may it help us to do that. It might get rough. And when it does, we might get that much tighter. That wouldn't be a bad thing. Well, in verse number 26, Christ goes on. He says, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He's coming back. Here's his glorious return. Who's with him, by the way? Well, who's with him? It's going to be us. Us who were raptured seven years prior to this. Going to be the mighty angels. And where's this showdown going to take place? As he returns with the armies of heaven, where's he returning to? Well, we don't have time to look at the scriptures, but I was in a place several months ago over in the Holy Land. In fact, we're up on the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. From the top of Mount Carmel, you can look down at the Valley of Jezreel. It's very significant in Bible prophecy, also known as Megiddo. I think the final battle there at Megiddo or Jezreel or Armageddon is going to take place in that valley. Napoleon once looked out at it and said, this is the most perfect battleground I've ever seen in my life. Bible tells us that the blood is going to flow in that valley one day. As, as you find the massed millions there in Megiddo mobilized, there's going to be this showdown. And uh, as they're about to do battle with each other, this paralyzing sight is going to come in the horizon from the sky. And they're going to look up. I don't know if they're going to think this is UFOs or invaders from outer space. But it's going to be Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us in verse 26 here, coming. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Notice those words, in the clouds. In the clouds. I've alluded to this already, but it's so important we understand this. If there's going to be a lot of false Christs in the last days saying, I'm him or I'm him, how can we discern between the real and the phonies? 
It's simple. The real one is going to come from the sky in the clouds. In the clouds. We read this in Acts 1 and in verse 9. It says, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he, Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. In verse 11, Angels said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So it all fits. He left in a cloud. He's coming back in a cloud. Is it cloudy out, by the way? You ever wonder that as you get up every day and look out and you say, it's cloudy. Could this be the day? Or does it just mean he's going to be enshrouded with clouds? I don't know, but it's consistent with the whole Bible. We read in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, the Jewish people, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Behold, he cometh with clouds. It all fits. In fact, about five to six hundred years prior to the time of Christ, in Daniel 7-13, it says, Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. So how will we know the real Jesus? He's coming in the clouds. In verse 27, Christ says, And then shall he send his angels, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. How is he going to gather them together? I was thinking about that this last week. Normally, in the Bible, when they wanted to combine an assembly together and bring them together, boop, 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 they used a trumpet. So, perhaps this trumpet will blow, and it mentions in verse 27 that he shall gather together his elect. That normally is a reference to those who've gotten saved or those who are about to get saved. It could be a tribulation converts at this point. He's gathering together, but that's not what I want you to focus in on. I want you to focus in on the words gather together. Gather together. Can we say that together? Gather together. Now, why is that so important? In 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 1, Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the gathering together unto him. You've read that many times. Probably never noticed it. It mentions this gathering together. It's an important event. In fact, in John 10, and in verse 16, Christ said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, speaking of those at that time, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. He's talking about gathering everyone together from the Old Testament, from the pre-flood time, from Noah and his descendants, from those at the time that the law existed, uh, to those who uh, came down through judges and the kings and the prophets, up through that period between the two testaments of 400 years, up through the gospel time, up through the dark ages and the renaissance and every other time period, up to the rapture and and the tribulation period, and and saying, I'm going to gather them all together. By the way, the Mormons take this verse and teach that Jesus was saying there's another group over in the Americas that i got to bring together with this group. And no, that's not true at all. Christ was talking about there's some that are alive now at this time, the apostles and such, but there are going to be other sheep which are not of this fold who are going to hear my voice. And he said there should be one fold and one shepherd. Now, I want you to go back 
all the way to Genesis with me, if you would, for a moment here. And you've got, of course, Adam and Eve, and you've got the flood, and then you come up to Abraham. We're not going to turn there, but, but Abraham would be the first Jew, as we would call him that. And he would have a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac would have a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob would have 12 boys who would be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jacob grows old. He's on his deathbed. He brings those 12 sons in, and he begins to pronounce the future upon them and, and the tribe that they represented. And he, he gets to one tribe, a very special tribe, by the name of Judah. In Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter, speaking of royalty or ruling, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, or a king, from between his feet until Shiloh come, a picture of Christ, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. It's mentioning it way back in Genesis. The gathering of the people. Jesus Christ gathering up all these people. And they were talking about it way back in Genesis. It's out yet yonder in the future. But if you know the Lord today, if you've been born again, if you've been saved, you'll be part of that gathering together. I'm looking forward to that day. We see in His glorious return, first of all, false saviors, fantastic signs, and finally, fig tree symbolism. Something about this fig tree symbolically that we've got to see here. In verse 28, he says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, this is interesting. I think you'll find this extremely interesting. It's about April 1st, roughly, at that time. And the trees are just beginning to bud. The figs are just beginning to bud. And, uh, and so he uses those, those fig trees as an example of, of something, a point he's trying to make that summer is just around the corner. And we know the same thing here. When the trees start leafing out, we know summer's just around the corner. Now, the apostle said, when are you coming back again? He wouldn't set a date, Right? But he gives him a lot of hints, and he, he, he gives him a lot of things that could uh, tip him off. And what he's saying here about the fig tree is really important. A lot of speculation about this. A lot of books have been written about this. You draw your own conclusion. But biblically and historically, figs in the Holy Land have been representative of the nation of Israel. The word fig or figs is found 61 times in the Bible. It is the fruit, if you will, of the Holy Land. And as you go way back to Adam and Eve, and they sinned and covered themselves with what kind of leaves? Fig leaves. You find the Jews later on going uh, into the uh, Promised Land and sending out spies, and they come back with what? Figs. Big clusters of figs on their shoulders here. You find a number of illustrations in the Bible about, about figs. You find Jeremiah seeing two baskets of figs. One are good and one are bad in their picture of Israel. And, and at the time of Christ even, figs were symbolic of the nation of Israel. Now, remember a couple of days earlier, Jesus Christ had come across this barren fig tree. What did he do? He cursed it. He cursed it. It's the only thing destructive he ever, the only destructive miracle he ever did in his, his ministry. He cursed the fig tree, and there's a reason for that. That fig tree was a picture of apostate Israel, which had abandoned, really, the truth. And, and so, by 70 A.D., you find that the Roman general Titus came, destroyed Jerusalem, and scattered the Jewish people, kicked them out of the land, 
And for 2,000 years, they were not back in that land until May 14, 1948, when the, the birth or the rebirth of Israel was heralded, and that was so significant. Because anything future-wise, prophetically, dealing with the last days has Israel back in their land. So really, the Lord could not have come back, if you will, until the Jews got back in the land. Now, what's this have to do with this fig tree? Let's read it again. In verse 28, he says, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh or nearby even at the door. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. He mentions here that this generation won't pass until all of this is fulfilled. The speculation, the books being written basically are this. If Israel is a picture of the fig tree and vice versa, and this fig tree rebutting is a picture of Israel, the rebirth of Israel in 1948, then Christ may be saying the generation that sees that will see these other signs as well. Well, that brings about the question, how long is a generation? And that's when they start setting dates. Some would say, well, they're 40 years. Some might say, well, it's three score and ten. It's 70. And then it would be just out yonder in the future yet. Some would say 100. I was just reading earlier in Genesis today about 100 years. But it might just mean the people that are alive at that time might be alive when, they, uh, when the Lord comes back again. I don't know. I leave that up to you. I'm not setting dates. But I do want to close with a few closing thoughts here quickly. First of all, when is this going to be? We have no idea. In Acts 1-7, Christ said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power. Now, there are going to be some indicators. We can look at those. We can be discerning that way. Secondly, what does this mean to Christians? Well, if we can recognize the indicators, certainly the devil can. That means the devil knows his time is short. The devil can read the Bible, by the way, and he can see what's taken place. And he can realize he hath but a short time and he will step up the assault. Thirdly, what does this mean? It means we need to be discerning. More discerning than ever. Because Christ had said in verse 22, even the elect are going to be deceived. Even the elect are going to be faked out. God allows heresies. God allows divisions. God allows false leaders and issues. Even amongst God's people to reveal who's discerning and who's not. Who has it and who doesn't, who gets it, and who doesn't. And I've seen it over and over again. There are those who see through it, there are those who are taken in by it, and it's not always who you think. It is surprising sometimes at those who are discerning. It is disappointing at other times to see those who don't get it. But we find out as God's people, we need to be discerning in the last days. We can't have anything clouding that discernment, like pride or bitterness or a lack of knowledge. We need to know. We need to know. So we find here that we need to be discerning. Fourthly, we talk about how rough it's going to get. I don't know. But if it gets rough, it should just bond us together that much more, right? God help it to do that. And finally, has the fig tree budded again? Is this the generation? I don't know. I know it's going to be bad news for unbelievers. It's going to be good news for believers. I know that human history ultimately will end in turmoil for the unsaved. 
But for the saved, for those who are born again, there's going to be victory. Because when Christ returns, he's not going to be some helpless babe in a stable someplace. He is going to be the omnipotent Son of God at his glorious return. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.